We'll hear argument now number 96, 1581, uh, South Dakota v. Yankton Sioux Tribe. Uh, General Barnett. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the case that is before the Court today uh, involves the question of whether an 1894 Act of Congress had the intent and the effect of disestablishing the Yankton Sioux Reservation. The State submits that the answer is conclusively yes, and we base that uh, yes on several factors, the first and not least of which is the use of session and some certain language in the operative or terms in the operative section of the agreement and the ratifying act. That particular session and some certain, the session, sale, relinquishment, and conveyance of all interests in and to the uh, unallotted land together with the some certain has been held by this court to create an almost insurmountable presumption or a nearly conclusive presumption. And we would submit to the court that that, in combination with the immediate uptake of jurisdiction by the state of South Dakota in 1895 and continuously uncontested state jurisdiction during the next hundred years, and throwing that together with the fact that that jurisdiction was exercised without objection by the tribe and without an attempt to exercise jurisdiction by the tribe or the federal government throughout those hundred years. And that's not merely our contention, but that also is the observation <clears throat> excuse me, of both the Eighth Circuit and the, uh, both the majority and dissenting opinion as well as the opinion of the unanimous state of South Dakota Supreme Court. And then add into that, as a method of telling us what everybody understood at the time that this act was passed pursuant to the agreement with the Yankton tribe, was what I will call the immediate wholesale settlement of the area by homesteaders, or what the district court referred to as the rapid settlement and the loss, the quick loss of Indian character in this area, which would suggest, at least to the state, that that uh, would suggest disestablishment. We also would submit to you that additional... Uh, may, may I ask you, uh, General Barnett, you use the word disestablishment, but as I read, um, particularly Judge McGill's decision, his dissenting opinion, he's very careful to speak always about diminishing and you seem to use those words as though they mean the same thing. Your Honor, I believe that uh, diminishment probably should be read to suggest uh, a case more like Rosebud versus Knipe, where the court said that as to several counties, the reservation was disestablished, but it still left uh, one county with a compact square of reservation. And so there was still actually 18 U.S.C. 1151A, type reservation country out there, but it was diminished in size. The case that we have here today, and I think the parties would agree that the case we're arguing today is disestablishment, just like the Dakota case where the Lake Traverse or Sisseton Wapiton tribe, the Lake Traverse Reservation, uh, was found by this court to be disestablished, meaning there was still no 1151 type, uh, 1151A type reservation out there. I, I might add, Your Honor, that uh, Diminishment and disestablishment at one time were probably not terms of art. In our view, they are now, and we are, uh, I think, today here litigating disestablishment. Even though um, Judge McGill said that he thought the district court erred in holding that the reservation had not been diminished. Yes, and I, and I do not believe, from reading all of Judge McGill's opinion, that he's trying to suggest 
that some 1151A type reservations still existed after 1894. I think, uh, to be honest, I would suggest to you that, uh, that he was probably using diminishment and disestablishment interchangeably, and that has happened in the history of the, uh, of the court system in other cases as well. Returning for a moment, if I may, to uh, the settlement history that took place out there, and the reason I bring it up is because this court on other occasions has looked to the settlement history immediately after the passage of the opening act to help it determine what did everybody understand at the time. And in this case, as was suggested by the Court of Claims in 1980, or as was found by that court, within three years of the opening of this reservation, more than 100,000 of these opened acres had been sold. Within five years, 90% had been sold. And as you will see at Joint Appendix 475, by 1913, in addition to the ceded lands which had been put up for settlement by the homesteaders, more than two-thirds of the allotted lands left to the Indians in 1894 had also been sold. General so, uh, Barnett, was the particular tract of land that we're concerned with in this case um, part of the land that was restored to the public domain by the 1892 agreement? Yes, Your Honor, we do contend that it was restored to the public domain. And by way of uh, explanation, uh, at the time of trial, 90% of all of the land in what we will call the disputed area, 90% of that former reservation area was in non-Indian hands, uh, which has been uh, something that the court has noted in its prior cases. Uh, and more than two-thirds, or 68% of the population, was non-Indian. Uh, as found by the federal census. So this puzzle was not allotted land that was later alienated? Uh, 168,000 acres of the 430, 168,000 were immediately ceded to the federal government and then, as I said, uh, began a rapid process of sale. And then the allotments, uh, which were the balance of the 430, uh, were in large part sold in the ensuing years in about the next 15 or 20 years uh, a great majority uh, of the uh, allotments were sold. Yeah, well, we were asking about this particular tract of land yeah. and its history. This is, this is the site of a, a, a proposed waste site or something? Oh, okay, I'm sorry. We're talking about a particular tract of land. Correct. Excuse now, me. Now, was that land that was directly restored to the public domain, was it allotted and then later resold? What was the history of this tract? It, was, uh, it, was, it is now and uh, was at the time of trial fee land. Uh, it was issued by a government patent, issued by the federal government. Uh, uh, I don't know the exact year, but I'm going to suggest in the late 1800s, and I can find that uh, fact uh, in time for rebuttal. Uh, but it was issued in, in a fee patent by the federal government and used actually the words public domain in that fee patent. And uh, it was before the so, 1890, 1892 agreement then? That I cannot answer. Uh, I, I'd be guessing, Your Honor, I do have that information, but I don't have it at my fingertips. The respondents rely on a savings clause in uh, Article 18, is it? That's correct, Your Honor. Are you going to address that? Because yes, it is language that uh, is different than that which we have seen in other uh, treaties or agreements. Yes, Your Honor. The... Uh, as we look at Article 18, it seems to the state that the one thing that you cannot do with Article 18 is read it literally. 
Because if you read it literally, in strict literal interpretation, then it says that nothing in this act in effect in our agreement in 1892 uh, actually happened. The sale did not happen. The uh, white homesteaders could not move in. Part of the 1858 treaty uh, forbade settlers or other whites from coming onto the reservation with certain narrow exceptions. And that was in 1858. By contrast, in 1892 and in the act ratifying it, the exact opposite purpose was there, that, that we are going to have whites come in and settle this area. And, and so when we try to interpret what Article 18 says, I think first that the, and I suspect the parties would even agree, it cannot be read literally, because then you get absurd results. Uh, the second thing that I would observe about Article 18 is that if you read the first sentence of Article 18, it says nothing in this treaty abrogates 1858 treaty, or nothing in this agreement. If that's true, all the rest of Article 18 is surplusage. If you go to the first uh, phrase in the second sentence, it repeats that phrase, that, that essential uh, statement. And if that's true, what came before and what came after is surplusage. And so it seems to me that it can't be read literally. And, and that takes us to the next point, which is, how does the federal government propose to us that it should, or to you, that it should be read? And if I understand their argument and their briefs correctly, they're suggesting that you need to read into Article 18 the phrase not inconsistent. And they go to Article 1 and 2 and suggest that 1 and 2 is not really a session in some certain, contrary to its express language, but isn't, and in fact, I would submit to you they are asking you to read out session in some certain and take that out and then construe what is left. And, uh, and I don't think that that is uh, the appropriate way to handle it. And in fact, I would, uh, uh, I would suggest that the Klamath case uh, had analogous situation where there was a savings clause in that case, which suggested that nothing in the, uh, in the more modern agreement was to, uh, was to take away rights they had preserved in the past. But as the Klamath court pointed out, the later agreement constituted a session and some certain and that the Klamath tribe could not silently preserve hunting and fishing rights through a general, the general language of a savings clause. Now, I would also submit to the court that when we look at 18 at the tail end of this agreement, or when you look at it, excuse me, I would suggest to you that it is important that that is not in the operative language of the, of the agreement or the act. And in fact, uh, I would, uh, I would uh, call your attention to the Hagen case, uh, where the court said that, uh, in observing on the Solem case, observed that the use of the words public domain in the Solem case were not found in the operative language of the act. And since they were not found in the uh, operative language, they had, I think, secondary importance. Um, <clears throat> or as Why the, isn't this in the operative language? In the 1892? Right because I don't think they intended to disestablish, excuse me, I think they intended to disestablish, and I don't think that, that they intended Article 18 to, to change what the terms or the operative intent of the Act were. I think that Article 18 was there to uh, reassure the tribe that they would receive the monies and the claims that they felt were due them, the annuities. Then why didn't they just say that and nothing else? Well, I think, uh, as one uh, justice said, or judge said at the Eighth Circuit, lawyers repeat themselves. And I suspect that, that probably what was happening was uh, the Indians were concerned 
that, uh, that the federal government was not going to live up to its obligations, and particularly when they understood they were selling their, their remaining reservation that they had received in the 1858 treaty, it seems to me that a fair question that would have been in the Indians' minds was, uh, are you going to abrogate that portion of the 1858 treaty from which our annuities flow? And the answer would be no. We are not going to abrogate the 1858 treaty, and you will get your annuities. And indeed, if you look at the uh, report that the commissioner uh, gave to the Secretary of Interior, who then filed with the Congress in 1893, what you will see is a, is a lengthy description in the record about what all of the Indians' concerns were and how these were resolved in the various articles of the agreement. And so there was a long discussion about pipestone quarry and a long discussion about uh, scout claims for, for Indians who had served as scouts and felt they still had money owing. A lot of discussion about their concerns. No discussion about preserving boundaries or authority in the first place. And in the second place, when we come to, the, to what the negotiator is telling Congress the Indians feel about 18, it gets one sentence, and one sentence only in the record. And what he says is, with regard to 18, his comment is, the Treaty of 1858 is not abrogated, and the Indians shall get their annuities. And so that suggests to me that, uh, that if the tribe really did think and believe that they were going to preserve their boundaries and their authority, number one, that's glaring conflict with the session in some certain language, and number two, is completely unsupported in the congressional and in the negotiating may, record. May I ask this question about Article One and, and also Justice Ginsburg's question of distinction between dis disestablishment and, and diminishment? That when you say, when the sentence says they cede, so forth and so on, uh, their interest in, in all the unallotted lands within the limits of the reservation set apart, doesn't that kind of convey a message? I don't know if you don't know the geography that there's some unallotted lands within the limits of the reservation to which this agreement applies, and there's additional land in the, in the reservation that's unaffected by this. Well, I read that reference as a geographical reference. Yes. And, 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 through, and the use of the phrase within the reservation right. does not suggest to us, given the fact that it's right in a session in some certain, does not suggest to us that a reservation is going to continue. It is simply a reference to what area it is that we are seeding and disestablishing. And I would call your attention to uh, the Dakota case uh, with the uh, Lake Traverse, Sisseton, and Wapitan tribe. Identical Article 1 and 2, word for word. Uh, and it used the same phrase within the reservation. And yet this court held, uh, as you know, that that reservation was disestablished. And I would also submit to you, Your Honor, that that... Uh, this is consistent with what the Indians have understood for the first 100 years as evidenced by their own constitutions, particularly the 1962 Constitution, which tells us something about what the Indians felt. Uh, in 1962, the territory that they claimed, this is in your joint appendix at 499, the only territory they claimed jurisdiction over in their own constitution was quote, tribal lands now owned by the tribe, end quote, which we think is a lot more consistent uh, than how, what... How do you... How, how do you uh, what's your theory of how the reservation becomes disestablished? That is, I take it they cede 200,000 acres of unallotted lands, and you're arguing 
those lands are no longer within the reservation. Yes. They're not, all right, they're subject to the jurisdiction of the state then. Correct. All right. And there remain 260,000 acres of allotted land. We are also arguing that. Now, what is it that, that changes the status of the allotted land in your theory? I believe that uh, we are adhering to the teaching of the Dakota case, mm -hmm. where the Dakota case at uh, 420 U.S. 446 in footnote 2 talks about when you cede the authority, the governmental authority that you have over an area, uh, and, or in this case to use the exact language, cede all interests, that with that goes the authority, not just over the immediately ceded, but in the entire region. And indeed, in the Dakota case, uh, the court said that what was intended to be left by Congress was the allotted lands, the allotted and trust lands, and under the Pelican case and under 18 U.S.C. 1151 A, B, and C, what we know today is that when there is a session in some certain, the authority is lost. The part that I'm having difficulty with is imagine a big square, A, B, C, and D, four subsquares within the big square. Right. Now suppose that a particular treaty said, we seed subsquares C and D. We keep A and B. Well, if that's what it said, wouldn't you think the reservation then consisted of A and B? We subscribe to the Dakota logic that, that I think suggested that Congress's intent was that the session means all authority. So if, in your view, if, if it's A, B, C, and D, and they say we seed, we sell, seed, get rid of, and absolutely never want to hear again of subsquares C and D, you're saying when they did that, they also destroyed the reservation as to A and B automatically. And I, that's, that's odd. What was lost at the time was 1151A type jurisdiction. And to go back to the Solemn case, the common notion uh, at that time in those years was that tribal, tribal ownership was synonymous with tribal authority. And so then when lands went out of tribal ownership, they lost that authority. And I'm thinking of the part that was left yes. in tribal ownership. And, and, and my point, Your Honor, is that then as those allotted lands are alienated, the Indian title becomes extinguished. To use the exact language of 18 U.S.C. 1151C, the Indian title is extinguished. And at that time, under the Dakota case, and under a long line of uh, cases uh, in the lower federal courts, uh, as well as, I think, the... Uh, <clears throat> the cases from this court, uh, then that, is, that also loses its status. But they keep their tribal status as to the little bits that they keep, that they don't. See, what I'm driving at is I took, take it that Felix Cohn thought that they must have been left with at least some jurisdiction in respect to little bits of territory that they, for example, kept completely, and those are scattered throughout the whole area. And therefore, it wouldn't be feasible to administer little scattered bits, bit by bit. And therefore, they must have intended to keep the whole area. Well, I think and that's a reference to the 1941 Cohen opinion. But let me observe that even Felix Cohen, as an advocate and uh, as a, uh, I believe, acting solicitor, even he did not base his opinion on Article 18 when he, re when he reviewed this. Secondly, the very next year, he offered the Perrin case. Uh, as authority for the proposition that the tribes, that, that this was now no longer reservation land. And so that certainly was an indication. But perhaps a better indication would be to, to look at how did the federal government and the tribe 
view this very question, because on all of those lands which were allotted and then later alienated, almost all of them by 1913, we've been out since 1913, or in all of those years, exercising jurisdiction without contest or objection from the tribe until about three years ago. And then you look at Felix Cohen issued his opinion in 1941, and if that was not a wake-up call to the federal government and the tribe that maybe you've got more jurisdiction on those lands which once were allotted, certainly Congress's enactment in 1948, uh, if this was still all reservation, both the original session land and the allotted lands that were alienated, that should have been a wake-up call, and still we did not see the federal government, and even as late as 1985, the federal government was arguing in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals that, or suggesting that this reservation, in fact, was diminished. So, Help me out, will you, on, on, the, on the, uh, the, the, the relationship between the session language and the particular parcels involved. The session language clearly referred uh, to the lands conveyed to the United States, which were then later conveyed out by the United States. Did the session language refer to, uh, to lands which had already been allotted but which were not at that point in 1892 conveyed to the United States? It, it used the words, all unallotted land. Now, there are a... So, that as to the allotted land, the session language did not apply. I think it has an effect. It applies... In but it didn't apply. I, 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 don't, I, I just want to make sure that I understand the way the terms were used. Then we get to the legal effect of it. I take it that in terms of, of the, the literal statement made, the language employing the term session did not, by its terms, apply to, to lands which had previously been allotted. I would agree. So that your argument there is not that the jurisdiction was lost by the session language as such, but by the application of some other rule, and I think it's the some other rule that I'm not clear about. Well, I think it's a reflection, Your Honor, of uh, when we look at 1151, a, B, and C, those are a codification of law that had been developing ever since the, I believe, the Bates v. Clark case back in the 1870s. And I think what the courts have said as they've looked at this question is, is that did Congress intend to disestablish the reservation? And if it did intend to disestablish the reservation, then the courts have been uniform. They have been uniform in concluding that not only is there a loss of authority or jurisdiction as to the lands immediately ceded, but they are also uh, taking the position, and this is consistent with the philosophy of the Allotment Act uh, the, uh, in the Yakima versus Yakima Indian Nation uh, case. Uh, the court, as expressed in uh, Justice Scalia's writings, talks about the policy of the Allotment Act. Mm -hmm. and, the, the, and I think you have to read that within, or as a historical context, throughout the late 1800s and into the first decade of the, of the 1900s, and that is that... The, the, the goal and the purpose of these session and some certain cases, the goal of Congress was to erase the boundaries. Oh, I will grant you that. I don't think there's any, any doubt, in, at least in my mind, about that. But I take it that the, the, the construction that you are arguing for would work this way. Let's take Justice Breyer's example, and uh, in, in, uh, instead of having the four quadrants A, B, C, and D, let's assume that there was one acre in quadrant D, and the tribe had made a, uh, an agreement with the United States using the same language here, ceding the one acre. I take it on your argument 
the entire reservation would be disestablished as a legal consequence of that. Is that correct? I would, that would certainly be a more difficult case. Uh, but that theoretically would be the application of your rule. Yes, theoretically that's correct if, I mean, and, I, and I, I have to add an if based on the uh, Hagen teaching, which is look at all of the circumstances. If in the operative language of the act, which was the case here, session and some certain, if that language is used, and if from all of the other circumstances that apply, the rapid settlement, uh, the uptake of jurisdiction. Yeah, this would have been rapid settlement of one acre. Okay, well, and so yours is a more difficult case, obviously. This was. Can I ask about this hypothetical? I assume this one acre is the only acre that is, is not previously allotted. All the rest is allotted lands. Is that how you understood the hypothetical? Yes. Okay, so, so the tribe has given away all of its unallotted portion in the yes. reservation. And, and to go back... But the allotted to, portions are two members of the tribe. Understood. Yeah. Yes, Your Honor. And, and to go back to what Dakota tells us, that that session in some certain is conveying governmental authority, and it is eliminating the boundaries in the entire quadrant. And what is left is the allotments which, and the dependent Indian communities. And so we are not contesting today that we have uh, jurisdiction over that 9%. We're suggesting we have 1151A jurisdiction over the 90% that is not in Indian hands. Well, I'm but troubled by why we should answer that broad question. We're dealing with one waste site on some kind of tract of land, and you can't even tell us the history of that particular tract. So, I mean, why doesn't... Why don't we just answer the question as to that and nothing else? To the best of my knowledge, Your Honor, that tract has never been allotted lands. But to say, but I would have to respectfully disagree with uh, the Justice, that we are not simply arguing over that one tract, because uh, that part is, whether or not there's going to be a site there is not on appeal here. What's on appeal is the district judge's opinion that there is still, that the broad boundaries are out there which create 1151A jurisdiction in the entire region, including the 90%. Uh, and, and let me just close so I can reserve a little bit of time. I would suggest to you this. If the federal government and the tribe read this act the way they do now, where have they been? If it could be easily and reasonably read that way, why wasn't it? Thank you. Thank you, General Barnett. Uh, Mr. Abras. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In the 1858 treaty, and I'd like to go back to that if I may, the tribe gave up 11 million acres of land to the United States government. These were enormous property rights and sovereignty rights that they bargained away in exchange for a 430,000 acre homeland, uh, a, a reservation that they believed was going to be their permanent home in perpetuity. Uh, they, uh, they also got annuities, they got some cash, I think $1.6 million. But this 430,000 acres was their land that they wanted to retain the Indian character, they wanted to retain this land uh, forever. And when the government came along after the allotments in 1892 and said, we want to buy what's left over from you, the surplus lands, the tribe held on so dearly to this 1858 treaty, to their boundaries, to the reservation, and their annuities, that they refused actually to sign the 1892 agreement until the federal government said, okay, we're going to give you Article 18, we'll give you uh, school lands, we'll give you the liquor provision that you've asked for. 
These were things demanded by the tribe, and they got them. And uh, as you know, they were handed a form agreement by the government, the tribe was, that had actually six, uh, six articles in it, and everything else was tagged on, uh, ins insisted upon by the tribe. Now, <clears throat> the state has been arguing uh, disestablishment and diminishment, and they use the terms interchangeably. Uh, they have in their briefs, and what uh, they're really asking for is not just diminishment, which would be the case Justice Breyer brought up, that would be carving out a discrete portion or a discrete parcel of the reservation saying, okay, this is now no longer here, so the reservation boundaries are diminished. No, what the state is asking for, and I think it's pretty clear in their, in their writings, is uh, termination, total termination of the reservation altogether. As far as this parcel at issue here is concerned, does it make any difference? In what, in what regard, uh, Justice? Even if it is only a diminishment rather than a disestablishment, wouldn't the parcel here be in the portion that was diminished, that is, that was taken away from the tribe? Uh, yes, it would be. Although, the reason you can't really argue diminishment in this respect, uh, and that's why they don't really say diminishment, is that the parcels were checkerboarded all the way, the allotment parcels were checkerboarded all the way through, as well as the seeded portions. They're everywhere within the southern half of Charles Mix County. So then it has to be disestablishment or nothing? Or nothing. That's what they're asking for, because you can't really diminish that. <laughs> well, but do you agree with the theory that it has to be, you would say nothing, and they would say disestablishment? Precisely. Why, why couldn't you, even if it was a checkerboard? Why, well, why do would, we have uh, to reach that question? I think it was uh, one of this court at one point said that if that were the case, uh, first of all, it's looked upon with disfavor, but secondly, uh, they would say uh, law enforcement people would have to have a map to decide who they can arrest and where. I think it would be very difficult to leave a checkerboard reservation. Do you, do you think, what, what is the practical consequence of, the, of, of this case, one way or the other? That is, I take it there are a lot of towns uh, in this area that are not Indian towns. They're, 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 they're all the descendants of the settlers or whatever. So there, are quite, there are several towns in there, and people have been treating it as part of South Dakota. Now, if you win this case, what happens to those towns? We're not talking about giving land back to the tribe. We're talking about jurisdiction, what laws apply. Is that right? Absolutely. So, so how does it work? Do the towns suddenly discover they don't have judges, that they don't have... Uh, how, how does this... What, what's, what turns on that? Well, that would never happen. Yeah. Uh, first of all, the federal government and the tribe have been exercising jurisdiction ever since the Eighth Circuit opinion. And the state now cannot arrest... Uh, Indians on Indian land within the boundaries of the reservation. If uh, we were to win this, if the tribe were to win the case, really nothing would change. It would be such a minimal uh, change that it would... What, what is the uh, jurisdiction in respect to the, the, those who are not members of the tribe who are in this territory? Uh, do they get to vote? I mean, who oh, do they course, vote yes. for? Uh, do they have town... Uh, councils? How, yes. How do, who, what there, government runs? There's a county government, there are, there are city government, town governments in each one of these towns. Well, isn't this, the, if, if you would win the case, just to continue with Justice Pryor's line of examination, would the federal government not then supplant the state? With only, only within the boundaries of the reservation and only with regard to Indian defendants in criminal cases. So in the non-Indian defendants, in the, in, the, in the ones people I'm thinking are not Indians, they have towns and there's some laws yes. uh, and rules and, and they're, they're uh, like judges and mayors. And w w What rules apply to elect all those people? Who, who, who the normal rules of South Dakota. Of South Dakota. South Dakota. Why does South Dakota law apply if it's within the bounds of uh, a reservation? 
is it that uh, in reservations normally the law of the state applies? Uh, sorry, say that last one. Why do, is it, what, I'm just missing a very basic Hornbook point probably, but in a reservation where there are groups of people who are not members of the tribe, what law applies to them? South Dakota law. The state laws apply. <clears throat> That's right. The only exception, Justice Breyer, is if a non-Indian were to commit a crime against an Indian within the boundaries of the reservation, the federal courts would take the jurisdiction. Well, what, what about civil jurisdiction, Mr. Abbott? We had an A-1 contracting case here last year where the, there was debate as to whether the tribal law and tribal courts would rule on an, on an automobile accident. Now, if, if the Eighth Circuit is upheld here, won't that same condition obtain on the Yankton Sioux Reservation? Uh, that, yes, the, the, the non-Indians would not be allowed to use the court unless they would both submit to its jurisdiction, the, the tribal court, unless they submitted to its jurisdiction. And I think the only difference... That was as a result of the decision that we made in that case, but um, I'm looking at the... This is a brief that was filed by a number of cities, and they paint... This is the city of Dante, etc. They paint uh, pages 8 to 12... A, a picture of massive confusion, and you are now standing here and saying it's not so. State law uh, will still apply, and it won't, won't be anything different. <clears throat> but we were arguing precisely about whether tribal law or state law applies, and, and hence whether this land can be used for this purpose or not. If it can under state law, but can't under tribal law. And you're telling us it doesn't make any difference. State no. law applies anyway. It will make no difference, a minimal difference, to the non-Indian population. Well, then, then why was this permit denied? Uh, the, 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 the permit. The, the permit wasn't. Why, why would the permit have been denied if if if, if you're correct? No, the permit wasn't denied. It was uh, first of all they brought a. Uh, it was an administrative hearing in state in the state administrative procedures, uh, asking for a permit from the state of South Dakota. Well, but you take the position that uh, the tribe has authority to determine whether or not the plant will be located here. No, no, we don't take that position. We, the position we took was that because the state could not permit on the reservation that the EPA regulations must be followed then instead of the state regulations, which are weaker than EPA's regulations. That so was federal argument. law rather than state law would govern? Yes, because the tribe had not gotten any authority to, to regulate uh, landfills within the reservation. And is the reason that state law would apply to the governance of the cities and towns in Justice Breyer's example, is the reason for that, that there is no supplanting federal law? No, the reason is uh, decisions by this court that uh, provide for different kinds of jurisdiction over different people, whether Indians or non-Indians. I see. I see. I see. Could, could I ask you how, you how you respond to what I understand to be the, uh, uh, what should I say, the uh, uh, philosophy of, of, uh, of the petitioner here? Uh, as I understand it, uh, the claim is that, that when all of the unallotted lands in a reservation are ceded, and there's nothing left in the reservation but allotted lands. It is to be understood that the reservation is thereby closed down. Now, it would be inconsistent with that, I suppose, if there were indeed numerous reservations which consisted of nothing but allotted lands, in which the tribe had no, no communal land left at all. It had all been allotted. Are there reservations like that? I don't know of any if there are. <clears throat> I think so. It, it, may, it may be it may, it, it may be true that uh, that that the way people thought at the end of the 19th century, if the tribe as a tribe doesn't own anything in this whole area, 
there can't be a reservation. You can't have a reservation composed only of lands that are owned by individual Indians, well, just all of which can be can, can be alienated to non-Indians. You, you have to have at least some uh, some basic component of, of tribal land that's owned by the community of the tribe. Well, there is in this case. Uh, right now, the I think the Eighth Circuit did a little research on its own, independent research, showing that there were anywhere from 32 to 44 percent of Indian population in the county within, uh, within that reservation. But so that doesn't go to land. tribal land. Yeah. That doesn't go to whether or not they're tribal land. The fact that there may be Indians living there. I mean, uh, are, are there tribal lands? Oh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, right now, about 10 percent, as uh, the Attorney General said, about 90 percent had been sold off. Uh, of the uh, ceded lands by uh, and were purchased by other people that are not not any longer tribal or Indian lands. Yeah. But but are you taking the position to put it crudely, sort of the the mirror image of the one that uh, that I was I was attributing uh, to the state? I said you know if they on the state's theory if they cede one acre, uh, they have in effect terminated the jurisdiction over everything. And 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 you are saying I guess that as long as they retain one acre. Uh, the entire reservation as a jurisdictional entity as opposed to a, a, a property title. I, uh, I would say something totally retained. different, uh, okay. Your Honor. What I would say is that Congress intended, by virtue of leaving in Article 18 in the, uh, in the 1894 statute, by leaving that in, they certainly intended to continue in, uh, tribal governmental authority in, within the boundaries of the reservation. And if you read the entire Why agreement... Why pick out that? Why pick out yeah. that one element from the whole treaty as the one element that, that Article 18 preserves? If you read it literally, it, it just takes away everything that the whole treaty... Uh, no, it, it, it continues the treaty, uh, Justice Scalia. It uh, doesn't take away anything. Well, the 1858 treaty it continues. Yeah, I was talking about the 1892 treaty. If you read Article 18 literally, it says this treaty shall have no effect. Well, it doesn't really say that. Well, I think I think a fair reading. Tell me why it doesn't say that. I mean, it it it, it says uh, what? Nothing in this agreement shall be construed to abrogate the 1858 treaty. Yes. And everything in the agreement abrogated one thing or another in the 18. The whole purpose of the agreement uh, was to abrogate some elements of the 1858 treaty. Well, wasn't? Respectfully, there's only one change made in the uh, between the 1858 treaty and the 94 agreement where there was a conflict. That in our, uh, Section 10 of the treaty in 1858 said that uh, white people, they didn't use the word non-Indian, they just said white people uh, in those days uh, cannot enter this reservation and cannot reside here. So that's the only conflicting portion. So uh, if you read, with statutory construction, you've passed a statute in 1894. That's a rather major, just a whole change in the concept from this is a reservation reserved for the use of Indians to a concept of we want the white men to come in and work side by side. For the, one is preserving a culture and the other is trying to break it up and assimilate it into another culture. It seems to me that these two uh, documents are totally at odds. Oh, I don't, I don't agree with that, uh, Justice Ginsburg, because if, if you read the whole entire treaty and the whole entire 1894 statute, I think it clearly shows that, uh, that the uh, whites, they could sell land to the non-Indians, and non-Indians could come and settle. In fact, if you read the legislative history and the report of the commissioners who negotiated it, they, say, they told the Indians that we would like whites to come in and show you how to farm and their upstanding uh, character, moral character, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we would like to do, and the Indians bought that. And they said, but they still wanted to maintain the Indian character of their reservation. 
which is how I read Article 18 to mean. And that's, of course, that's how the two lower courts read it as well. Uh, and you take this, this session in some certain language, which is, uh, uh, in my view, it's just boilerplate in all but, of those agreements. But this court has said it's nearly uh, irrebuttable. No, Solem said, if you take those two, they're almost, or nearly, uh, Hagen said nearly. Solem said almost irrebuttable presumption. But if you read the entire agreement together, I say the presumption falls upon, uh, the, the presumption is that uh, the Indians retain the reservation, and then it's you, up to the state to rebut you, it. Do, if you're taking that position, say, court, you were wrong, you should qualify or even overturn your precedent. Because the normal understanding of an almost irrebuttable presumption is it takes a whole lot, not something that's ambiguous. Uh, am, ambiguous. Well, if it is ambiguous, it should be decided in favor of the tribe in any event, but according the, to this court. But if you say if we're faced with something irre, almost irrebuttable and, and something that's kind of weak, it could mean one thing, it could mean another thing, why does the, the part that's uncertain... Well, dominate what we have said is a very strong presumption. Uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg, if you read the entire agreement and the statute of 1894, uh, I, what my position is, our position, is that the presumption is in favor of maintaining the reservation boundaries because of what Article 18, Article 17, and the school... Then the, the presumption that's created by the session in some certain clause is rebutted in your view. Uh, it's not, not only rebutted, but it shifts the burden of proof then shifts to the state or the people trying to ab abolish the reservation, and I don't think they've met that burden. But uh, if, if, don't you agree that there are various inferences that can be drawn, say, between Article 18 and Article 1 and 2, that it isn't just crystal clear? And it seems to me there, uh, as Justice Ginsburg says, if, if you, unless you're attacking what we said was the test in Solom, that where you have a session for a sum certain, there's an almost insurmountable presumption, you have to come up with something more than just one way of reading a treaty as opposed to somebody else's reading, either, either of which is plausible. But you also said in Solomon that there must be substantial and compelling evidence in order to disestablish or diminish a reservation. And what I'm saying, Your Honor, is this, that uh, the, the evidence is not there. The state has not met its burden. To, uh, to, it doesn't show any substance. Well, but it doesn't show any the language in Solem suggests it meets its burden of uh, when it says there's a cession of land for a sum certain, which there certainly is here. If that's all there were, but there is more, and I mean more by Article 18. Yes, but the more would then go to rebutting the almost in insurmountable presumption. I, I just question whether you have that much more. Oh, I well, of course, our position is that we have an awful lot right. more. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm still curious, um, Council, why you don't take the position that uh, the 1894 Act might have diminished the reservation but not disestablished it entirely. Well, uh, we take that position simply because it's not practical to, uh, to uh, diminish. You don't take that position, do you? Uh, we don't, really, because it's not practical. It, you just can't do it. Because Although you said there are some tribal lands left. Yes. But they also are checkerboarded, I think. Yes, they are. How did, how did they ever get there uh, if, if all of the unallotted land was ceded and all of the land that was left was allotted to individual members of the tribe? How did it come about that there are still some tribes?
tribal lands. That there are still some? Tribal lands. Uh, well, they're owned by individual Indians. Uh, so these are all allotted lands, in other words. Yes, yeah. And there are, there are some tribal lands, but mostly it's individual. Well, what are tribal it's lands? I mean, that's crucial to me. I, I thought all the tribal lands, all the communally owned lands, were given to the United States. That, that, that's certainly what this... No, no. No? Uh, Your Honor, what, what happened was there were... Uh, the allotments were over 200,000 acres uh, that were allotted out. What was left over was 160-some thousand acres. That's what the government came along and bought in 1892. Right. All of the unallotted lands, which was the only portion of the reservation that was still held by the tribe rather than individual Indians, right? Yes. Okay. So there, there, were, there were no tribal lands retained in 1892. Yes, there were, but... Uh, well, I thought, then I don't understand your answer to Justice Scalia. I must have misunderstood his question, but there are, there were tribal lands in 1894, but most of them are individual Indian allotments. Owned but, by Indian. But if, if you distinguish between individual Indian allotments and, quote, tribal lands, uh, are, you, are you saying there are some tri what you call tribal lands that are not individual allotments? Yes, very, not very many. Not very many acres, but there are, yes. And some of them have been in the tribe's possession since before the 1892 treaty. It, they were all in the tribe's possession prior to 1892. Then, but uh, the, 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 the communally owned tribal land was owned by the Indians and so held before 1892 and have been held continuously to the present day. Is that correct? No, no. Uh, all of the lands, all of the 430,000 acres were communally owned until the allotments. Right. Around, and then, then what was left over in 1892, the government purchased. That was 160. So when the government purchased, there were no communally land, owned lands, tribal lands, retained by the tribe as such. That well, is only a mile square. Uh, there was a mile square they retained for their headquarters, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Thank you, Mr. Abreth. Mr. Ne uh, who do we have here? Ms. McDowell. <laughs> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, to start with last things first, we'd like to deal with the jurisdiction over the uh, reservation area subsequent to 1894. Um, one can find in the record annual reports from the superintendent of the Yankton Reservation uh, from 1895, 1896, and so forth to 18 to 1906, which I believe is the last report in the record, uh, those reports consistently refer to the reservation as a continuing entity. It's interesting that uh, it doesn't demonstrate any significant change at the time of the opening. There's a notation that uh, the reservation was opened, but there is nothing uh, to suggest that there was a major change in uh, the situation on the reservation at the time. But there's nothing in there, I take it, to suggest that this kind of jurisdiction was being exercised over either allotted lands or the lands that were conveyed in 18 or by, under the under the 1892 agreement. Uh, the record is unclear as to whether uh, the state or the tribe or the federal government was exercising jurisdiction over the um, allotted lands at the time. It appears that the only prosecution. Uh, um, that is cited from the early era, one in 1895, may well have been on Indian uh, allocated lands. It does not appear clear from my reading of the record. More significantly, however, uh, the exercise of criminal jurisdiction by the state was not inconsistent at the time with the uh, continued reservation status. As the court noted in the Yakima case, uh, at the time it was thought that uh, Indian character of the land went with um, Indian ownership and um, 
it was also thought that um, once an Indian received an uh, allotment under the Dawes Act, the Indian immediately became a citizen of the state and subject to its plenary jurisdiction. That was only changed in 1906, which was some time after the um, act at issue. A theory which is beautifully in accord with the state's notion that everyone would have assumed that if there's nothing left in a reservation but allotted lands, there's no reservation left. Oh, that's a theory that this court has subsequently rejected over the last it, it, 35 years. It's very years. nicely with what you say to be the, 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 uh, the understanding that, uh, that you can't have a, uh, uh, the reservation went with, uh, with Indian ownership. Well, the court has acknowledged that in a number of other cases, including Solem, that at the time uh, the understanding was that Indian status was a property status but that Congress uh, disabused everyone of that notion in 1948 and uh, that when we are deciding uh, these disestablishment and diminishment issues, we are looking at reservations uh, as they have been considered after 48 and not uh, as they may have been considered uh, 100 years ago. How, how, what is the normal now? I take it now differently from before 1906. Imagine a reservation of 50 square miles on one of those square miles live a group of people who are not Indians, who own their land in fee, and who bought it from the tribe. Now, what law governs? The law of the state governs those people? I know the tribal law does not govern them. So far, it seems to me from what I've looked up, federal law governs. Uh, state law governs them, except in some uh, particular instances. That Why does state out? law govern? Is it that the federal government has somehow, through law, statute, or regulation, brought in state law? No, it's because the, uh, I understand it's because the state has plenary jurisdiction over its citizens wherever they reside. Right, so in other words, these towns that are upset, I don't understand they're upset, or maybe they shouldn't be upset because nothing's going to change for them. That's our position. Then why is it, I'm back at Justice Kennedy's point, why is it that there's some argument here about building a, uh, uh, some kind of thing in this uh, waste disposal or what it is, if state law governs? the same as it would if it were not within the reservation. Uh, this is a, a particular issue of the uh, ETA's authority to delegate um, uh, primary supervision of landfills to the state. And under that permitting authority, um, the state excluded Indian reservations, as I understand it. But uh, as a general matter... Um, what about taxation? Uh, as a general matter, the state may um, tax its citizens on the reservation. Uh, certainly it can tax the non-Indian citizens uh, just as it would uh, whether it was a reservation or not. Um, it may also impose significant taxes such as uh, property taxes on the Indians. So in the absence of a federal statute that explicitly distinguishes between what happens on the reservation or not, everything stays the same. But for the Indians themselves, because they would have certain rights, uh, under tribal law, etc., if it is a reservation throughout the reservation that they wouldn't have if it isn't? Uh, with a few limited um, is that exceptions, right? Justice Breyer. Um, if an Indian commits a crime, if a, a non-Indian commits a crime against an Indian, if it's reservation land, then federal law rather than state law governs the prosecution. Uh, the state in A1, uh, this court in could, A1 contract... Could you enlighten us um, on what lands continued to be owned by the tribe as such, as opposed to by specific Indians by way of allotment it's, after 1892? Uh, 
it's my understanding that those lands were, uh, for the most part, allocated to individual Indians. However, the well, I'm hearing a lot of for the most parts and but no, and there's this other land and it's scattered. I mean, what is it? How are we to find out? It appears from the record, which is not entirely clear, uh, that there were some lands that uh, were subject to allocation, but the actual allocations were not made until sometime after 1894. Uh, there's also the but miles But they've all been made. Is there any land that was uh, held continuously by the tribe as such, as opposed to tribal members? since 1892. It's my understanding that there is this mile square area that's a one square mile. To, uh, but other than that, although there are trust lands today that are held by the tribe, mm -hmm. uh, it's not clear that any of those lands were um, trust lands earlier. Perhaps Mr. Aberus could clarify that, however. Now, if this, this is a totally checkerboarded situation. That's correct. And this that was certainly a factor that resulted in our thinking there was at least diminishment in the Dakota case? Well, the court in Dakota found uh, total disestablishment, but that was a different case in several respects from this one. In the first place, of course, there was no savings clause preserving uh, rights under an earlier treaty. In addition, the court placed a lot of emphasis in Dakota on the um, uh, negotiation history with the tribe. There were a number of statements of tribal leaders stating that we understand that the reservation is going to disappear, essentially, that we never understood that we would keep this reservation. Here, there are no statements like that, uh, suggesting any kind of common understanding that the reservation was going to be extinguished uh, as a result of uh, the act. It's interesting that... But um, you, do, do you agree with both counsel? It seems to me that the choice is either we accept your argument based on Article 18, or there's a disestablishment, that there is no such thing as diminishment applicable on these facts. That's correct. Diminishment seems to be limited to cases such as Rosebud, where there was a selling or a seeding of a part of the reservation in so many words, as opposed to this sort of situation. Didn't, didn't um, uh, Judge Murphy say she thought that, that the disestablishment was the rare thing and the diminishment the usual thing? Well, very disestablishment is very rare. This court has only found it in one prior case, Dakota, and subsequently in Rosebud, the court suggested that uh, disestablishment should be more difficult to find. Uh, it suggested uh, that... Ms. McDowell, yeah. can I go back to what you said? You said Rosebud is different because there it involved a conveyance of only part of the reservation in so many words. Yes. But this case involves a conveyance of only part of the reservation in so many words, namely the part that was held in fee by the tribe and not the part that had been allotted. Uh, Do you mean that Roosevelt involved only a conveyance of part of the tribally owned portion of the reservation in so many words? Is that what you mean? Well, the language of the statute in Rosebud says we cede a part of our reservation. That kind of language wasn't used here. The language was we cede our surplus lands. Uh, there was no reference to selling off all or part of the reservation. It should also be noted that the but word cede didn't have any single settled meaning in the 19th century. Isn't that it, it was true, though, that apart from the savings clause and the negotiating history, if you just look at the text of the document, and the Dakota case is just like this. That if you had, let me just finish one question, she can comment. If you would assume that if, if everything is allotted, you don't have a reservation. And if you then assume that all that's left is unallotted land, but then you cede your entire authority over the unallotted lands, what can be left? I, I have trouble getting your explanation of that. Uh, 
several responses. Uh, there are other differences between this case and the I understand the differences there. because the history primarily in the absence of the savings clause. And there are other clauses that are in our um, act here that were not in the act in Dakota, uh, such as the reservation of lands for agency school and other purposes. That was not present in Dakota. It is uh, present here. Thank you, Ms. McDowell. Uh, General Barnett, you have two minutes left. General Barnett, could you quickly uh, advise us what the jurisdictional consequence of this of this case is? Well, what does the state lose if if you lose? I think we lose a vast amount of clarity, as we are standing here, or up until the district court opinion, jurisdiction in the 90 percent of this area that has gone out of Indian hands was what, clear. What kinds of authority can you not exercise? if you lose that you're exercising well, now? Obviously, uh, if you were to hold that it is still a reservation in this entire area, uh, it would have a big effect on criminal jurisdiction. And the best example I can give you is that if you were the victim of a crime out there on that 90% of that area, uh, it's the difference between whether you call the sheriff down the road or whether you call the FBI office 120 miles east of there in Sioux Falls and leave a message on the machine. Uh, secondly, jurisdiction over Indians. This, uh, criminal jurisdiction over Indians, is there anything else? Is there anything in respect to non-Indians? Uh, yes, I think there would be. Uh, you're on a reservation at that point, and I think there would be uh, criminal what? aspects because of 18... I mean, is there any civil? Yes, there would what? be. Uh, well, I think there are a number of uh, holdings of this court that suggest that, that uh, if there is a reservation out there, the tribe is going to have some rights of civil jurisdiction, and indeed, in this case... When they first now started claiming that they had civil jurisdiction, they're in trying to contest uh, fee land, uh, uh, fee land uh, landfill that isn't even on trust land. That's our Brendel case, the Brendel case. I, suffice it to say, Your Honor, with the uh, and, I, and I'm trying to be brief to stay within my time, but uh, suffice it to say that this court is aware that there would be all sorts of ramifications that the court has seen in prior cases. Uh, in disputes over civil jurisdiction, A1 being one place where we've had to litigate who's in charge. Let me just clarify something else. In, the, in this act, there was no tribal land base left. Yeah, there was a little reserve of federal land for the one-mile square, uh, but everything else was allotments, and so tribal communal ownership was over. Um, secondly, there were savings clauses in Montana, in the Montana Crow Agreements, and in the Rosebud Agreement, and uh, it seems to me there is a hook in the argument that they're suggesting that a non-operative savings clause with no specific language about preserving some authority and no contemporary history. Uh, my time is up. Yes, thank, thank you. you, General Barnett. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock. <laughs>